Amen. Thanks, Mike. It's good to be back with you. I was thinking about uh, coming back after time away, and I was reminded of uh, the annual visits to my grandmother's house growing up. And uh, we would always go from Ohio to Mississippi and see my grandma and my great-grandmother. And my great-grandmother, whom we called Baba, had uh, this incredible knack for some sideways compliment uh, slash insult. And uh, so she would always look at me and say something like, wow, you've been eating well, haven't you? (laughs) Yes, Baba. I was thinking about being away, and I just look at you and I say, you guys have been eating well. (laughs) And I'm not talking about Thanksgiving. I'm talking about last Sunday's sermon and the great word that our brother Eli preached here. Just to, to hear that and to know that you are being fed truth in this place. What a gift and what a joy. And, and that makes my job easier because it means my job is to come here and, and just do the same thing. Not a gimmick, but to give you God's word. And I hope to do that this morning. As it's already been said, um, we are going to uh, take a few weeks off of our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4 for a few weeks. So if you're not uh, already there, go ahead and grab your Bible or app and turn to Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at some of the forgotten characters from the Christmas story. So, so Christmas story, the, the Christmas season is, is filled with unforgettable characters, uh, you've got Rudolph and Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman. There's Ebenezer Scrooge and Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim, Linus and Snoopy and Charlie Brown, George Bailey and Mr. Potter, of course, uh, Kevin McAllister and Harry and Marv. Uh, for some of you, there's Gizmo and Stripe uh, for, or Buddy the Elf or the Grinch Jack Skellington, Sally and Zero, or Clark Griswold, Ralphie Parker, and for some of you, John McClane. And for others of you, it's not a Christmas movie. It's just not, it's not only the characters on our screens, though, it's also the Bible itself. It's filled with unforgettable characters. Every Christmas time, you know, we're, we're, we're reminded of the angel Gabriel who goes out on, on missions from the Father to tell people good news of a, of a coming child. Or there's Mary, this young virgin with an unplanned pregnancy on her way to Bethlehem. Or, or Joseph, an, an engaged man who's trying to do the right thing. Or a team of lowly shepherds watching their flocks by night or a group of magi following a star to worship the king. But some of the most important characters in the Christmas story are often forgotten. Of course, we remember Jesus, the baby king born in a stable. But the other two members of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Spirit, are often completely forgotten when we tell the Christmas story. And what I want you to see over the next few weeks, with God's help, is that you cannot rightly tell the Christmas story without the Trinity. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, I hope that if nothing else, you will leave today and hopefully the next few weeks if you're with us again, 
uh, with a better understanding of what Christians actually believe when we talk about the Trinity. It could be, perhaps, that this is, for you, a major stumbling block. And I hope to hopefully clear away some of the rubble that shouldn't be there in the first place so you can see what the Bible itself says about this glorious doctrine. Or maybe you're in this room and you're a Christian. I hope that this series will increase your sense of joy and wonder at Christmas time. Not in in the magic of the season, but in the glorious, wondrous mystery of the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Galatians chapter 4, it's written about A.D. 49. About 16 years have passed since Jesus ascended into heaven, completed his earthly ministry, and the Apostle Paul is traveling around, starting churches, and then he'll write letters to churches in different regions with instructions about how to faithfully follow Jesus. And the book of Galatians is a letter that he wrote to churches in the region of Galatia. And in this letter, he's, he's challenging these Christians not to abandon the gospel, not to turn away from the good news that they are saved, not by their effort, but by the work of Christ on the cross. And he's in the middle, in chapter 4, he's in the middle of explaining how Christians are children of God and not slaves of the law when he says this, what was read earlier in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So in this passage, we we clearly see something about the Christmas story. We're told that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of a woman. But we're also clearly seeing something about this doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This morning, I want us to see that you cannot rightly tell the Christmas story without the Trinity. With God's help, I want to ask and answer two questions about the Trinity this morning. And the next few weeks, we're going to take each week over the next three weeks and look at each person of the Trinity, kind of zoom in on the text and zoom in a little bit on the glorious majesty of each person in this Godhead. But today, two questions about the Trinity. Number one, what does the Trinity mean? What does the Trinity mean? In his book, The Forgotten Trinity, uh, James White says, the single greatest reason people struggle with the doctrine of the Trinity is miscommunication. It It is very rare that anyone actually argues or debates about the real doctrine of the Trinity. Most arguments involve two or more people fighting vigorously over two or more misrepresentations of the doctrine itself. So in other words, often our confusion, our debates about the Trinity are because we're not clearly articulating what the Bible says. So we're going to start by, as best as we can, saying what we do not mean by Trinity. 
Okay, so clear some of the rubble that shouldn't be there. By Trinity, here's four major Trinitarian errors. Four things we do not believe when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. Number one, we do not believe that there are three gods. We do not believe in three gods. This is the error of tritheism, that there is three gods. So you remember that scene in the first Avengers movie, uh, Black Widow, tells Captain America to avoid the fight between Loki and Thor because these guys come from legend. They're basically gods. And then Captain America responds, there's only one God, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Okay? The belief that there's only one God, this is called monotheism. One God, mono, one, theism, God, and it's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. So uh, Isaiah 44, verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There's only one God. Or Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That passage is, is called the Shema. It's the most essential prayer in all Judaism. And it's re recited by observant Jews every morning and every evening. I know this for a fact because when I was on my way to Israel a couple of years ago, I had finally fallen asleep on this long, like, 12-hour flight. And there was no air conditioning the whole flight. Ridiculously hot. And all of a sudden, right after I fall asleep, an ultra-Orthodox Jew stands up and starts loudly reciting the Shema and waking up the entire cabin. Okay, this is really, really important. Monotheism, there is one God all over the Old Testament. When Jesus comes along in the New Testament, he does not overturn what the Old Testament tells us about God being one. So in Mark 12, a scribe asked Jesus, which commandment is the greatest? And Jesus answers him, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or Paul himself, who wrote most of the New Testament, would agree, saying in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So, Christian, we believe not that there are three gods, but that there is one God. One God. Now, a common way that some have uh, tried to explain the Trinity is by using something like an egg. So, you think about an egg. An egg is one thing. It's an egg, but it's got three main parts. You have the, the, the white, you have the yolk, and you have the shell. And, and so some would say, okay, God is like that. You've got one thing and three parts. The problem with this analogy is that those three different parts are completely different. Okay? When you get shell and your scrambled eggs, what do you do? You pick it out, right? Hopefully. Unless something's wrong with you. You don't eat that. Right? And, and uh, it's completely different things. The white is different from the yolk. The shell is different from both. So this actually, this analogy actually inadvertently, no one's trying to do this, but it teaches a, a heresy called tritheism. 
that there are three gods. It's not what Christians believe. Okay, so there's one error. Get that out of the way. We're not saying there's three gods. Here's a second one. We're not talking about three manifestations of God. Uh, This is an error sometimes called modalism. Or, uh, if you prefer, uh, Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, calls it modalism. And the idea is that God has three moods or three modes, three ways of expressing himself, sometimes as father, sometimes as son, sometimes as spirit. So maybe you've heard another analogy that's sometimes used to explain the Trinity. Uh, People will sometimes say it's kind of like water. If you think about water or H2O, it can exist in three states. It can exist as a solid, as a liquid, and as a gas. Although the water can change forms, its essence doesn't change. It It remains H2O. And some will say so too with the Trinity. God appears to us sometimes as Father, sometimes as Son, and other times as Spirit, but He's always God. This is modalism. And God isn't like an actor. You know, think about the old Greek plays where you might have one man on the stage playing all the parts in the play, and he puts on a mask to represent different characters in the story. God is not like that. He's not sometimes saying, okay, now I'm going to relate to you as father. Now I'm going to relate to you as son. Now I'm going to relate to you as spirit. No. We're not saying that God appears to us in three different ways. God is three persons and yet one being. Now, I want you to think just for a second. Let me go back to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. Think about how confusing this passage would be if we used modalism as a way of understanding the Trinity. Look at this passage, Galatians 4. And because you are sons, verse 6, God has sent the spirit manifestation of himself, of his son manifestation of himself, into our hearts, crying out to the father manifestation of himself. Does that make any sense to you? No. If you look at verse 6, it's pretty clear. Scripture is teaching that God exists in three different persons. Or if you go to Jordan, Augustine would say, go to the Jordan River, and there you will see Jesus being baptized and the Spirit descending like a dove and the voice of the Father from heaven. Three persons, not three different moods or manifestations. So we don't believe that. We don't believe, number three, that there are three parts of God. Uh, This has sometimes been called partialism, that God is three parts, kind of like one plus one plus one equals three or equals one, right? If you add up Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each one is kind of one-third God. Uh, Another popular analogy that's been used to try to explain the Trinity is a shamrock, So uh, perhaps you've heard the story of St. Patrick, and uh, supposedly St. Patrick would use the the shamrock to teach people the Trinity, and now we celebrate him by uh, getting drunk and turning the Chicago uh, River green, right? That's St. Patrick's Day. That's what they do. 
And so idea, the idea was that you take this shamrock, you've got this little plant, and it's got three clovers, and God is like that. One plant, three clovers, one God, three persons. The problem with that is that one of those leaves is not in itself a shamrock. It's a third of a shamrock, right? So the Spirit is not one-third God. The Son is not one-third God. The Father is not one-third God. Or if you prefer, if you're a child of the 80s, God is not like Voltron, right? Where you get together these five robot lions, and, and when they're all together, they become what? Voltron, the defender of the universe. If you get Father and Son and Holy Spirit and put them all together, voila, God. No. God cannot be divided into parts. So the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. God is not like a piece of pie, or a, a, a pizza pie with three slices, one for each person of the Trinity. The Father is fully God. If he's just one-third God, he's not worthy of our worship, is he? Same for the Son. And same for the Spirit. The Son isn't one-third God. He's, he's fully God and fully deserving of our worship. So if you remember about a, a month or two ago when the wise men make it to the house and they see the baby Jesus, what do they do? They worship him. They worship him. Why? Because they believe that he is God. The Spirit is not one-third of God. He is fully God and fully deserving of your worship. The Spirit is not an it. He's a person. He's not a force or an energy. He is the third person of the Trinity. So in Acts 5, if you remember the story, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they lie to Peter about how much they gave. And Peter says, you have lied to the Spirit and you have lied to God. The Spirit is a person, and the Spirit is God. So we don't believe that there are three different parts of God. And number four, we don't believe that there is a big God and lesser gods. We do not believe that there is a big God, the Father, and lesser gods, the Son, and the Spirit. This is a heresy called Arianism. So another popular analogy that some have used to explain the Trinity is the Son, the Father is like the sun itself, and the sun is like the light rays that re visibly reveal the sun, just like Jesus visibly images the invisible God, and, and the Spirit is like the, the heat that the sun produces, unseen yet powerful and effective in making the sun felt. Now, this analogy sounds pretty good, but the potential problem with it is that the sun is the generating source of the light and heat. God the Father does not create the sun. The Father didn't create the sun. The Father isn't the big God, and the Son and the Spirit are lesser gods. This is, again, a heresy called Arianism. So, there was a man named Arius in the fourth century. He was a a pastor in Alexander, uh, Alexandria, Egypt, sorry, the third and fourth century. And he taught that God the Father was eternal, and God the Father chose to create, first of all, the Son, and then the Spirit, 
Uh, together, the Father and Son created the Holy Spirit. And he began teaching this heresy that bears his name, Arianism. And uh, some churches around where Arius was began to listen to what he was saying, and they said, this is wrong. God, the Father, did not create God the Son. Do you remember John chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the what? Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. Jesus is God. But Arius was saying, well, he is kind of, but he's a lesser God. And so some of the area pastors where Arius was preaching got upset and they kicked him out. And so he moved somewhere else and he began preaching and teaching the same thing somewhere else. And right around the same time, Constantine has his supposed conversion to Christianity. He's the emperor of Rome. And Constantine is concerned that the empire is going to be divided by Arius's teaching. And so Constantine caused this big council called the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., and he invites all the area pastors to come and hear debates on what do we believe about the nature of God? Did the Father create the Son, or was the Son uncreated? And this is actually, this story is one of my favorite Santa Claus stories of all time. Um, in the summer of 325, St. Nicholas, yes, that St. Nicholas, was also at that council in 325 at Nicaea. And Nicholas was there among all these other pastors. And Arius stands up and he begins to teach and preach that the Son is a created being, created by the Father. Yes, he's God, but he's a lesser God. And St. Nicholas is sitting there and he's clenching his fists. And at some point, he cannot hear anymore. And he walks up to Arius and punches him in the face. Now, I'm not advocating that we should punch heretics. I think Eli would get on to me after his sermon last Sunday. <laughs> but... We should be passionate about the truth. The Bible is clear that both the Son and the Spirit are God and eternal. So, John 1, 1, we already said this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or Hebrews 9, 14 says that the Spirit is the eternal Spirit. There never was a time when there was not the Son. Now, if that doesn't make you rejoice in the Christmas story, I don't know what else can. That the eternal Son would choose to step into time, become a baby, be born under the law and be killed as a lawbreaker. That is glorious. The, the Son is uncreated. The Spirit is uncreated. They are eternal. So there is no big God in lesser gods. There is one God in three persons. Now, I just took a few moments and hopefully crushed any analogy that you might try to use about the Trinity because there really isn't any. There really isn't any. And here's the reason why. You can't compare 
the triune nature of God to anything else in this universe because there's nothing else like it. It is completely unique. That God would exist as one being in three persons is really, really hard to comprehend. And so it should be. If God were easy for you to figure out, don't you think he wouldn't be quite a God? Now, if you have found yourself at one point or another, as I have, using one or more of these faulty illustrations to describe the Trinity or try to make sense of it, listen, I don't mean to shame you. That's not the desire behind this. I would just say, don't do it again. All of us have tried many times to try to latch on and make sense of this, and yet, What we find over and over again is that God refuses to neatly fit into a lot of the categories in which we would try to place him. And so we must affirm what the Bible clearly affirms, that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons. That's what we mean by Trinity. God is one, one being existing in three co-equal and co-eternal Persons. There's a, a definition of Trinity for you, what we mean, what Christians believe. If you're not a follower of Jesus in this room, this is what Christians have believed for 2,000 years about Trinity. One God, one being, existing in three co-equal and co-eternal persons. Every word in that sentence is important. God is one being. There's not three gods. There is one God. Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal. In other words, the Father is not more valuable or more precious or more powerful than the Son or the Spirit. They are co-equal. Yes, the Son does submit to the Father in his incarnation, but he is co-equal to the Father. And co-eternal, Father, Son, and Spirit have each existed together for eternity. And they're not the same. Father, Son, and Spirit are not different ways of talking about God. They are different persons within the one being of God. So the Father is God, but He's not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is God, but He's not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is God, but He's not the Father or the Son. If you look at that chart, see some of your faces screwed up a little bit. You say, well, that's, that's a contradiction. No, it's not. It's confusing. It's hard to understand, but it's not a contradiction. A contradiction would be if we said there is one God and there is not one God, or there are three persons and there are not three persons. That's a contradiction. When we look at this, we can say this is mysterious and confusing, but... It's gloriously true. I want to take just a second and talk to you in this room that maybe are not believers in Jesus Christ. You're not a Christian. Listen to me for just a second. Who would you believe created all of this, all that is? Who made this? What is underneath all of this? Look at the complexity in our world. Who could come up with all of this complexity? 
The scientific establishment would tell you that all of this complexity came from a single-cell organism. That complexity, massive, glorious, limitless complexity came from a singularity. Is it easier to believe that? Or that all of this complexity came from a being that's actually more complex? That's actually bigger than you can wrap your minds around. That's actually so massive and so great and so glorious that all you can do is fall on your knees before him and say, I don't understand you, but I worship you. And I believe that you are, and I love you. That's what I would invite you to today if you're not a follower of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you don't need to be able to fully understand this or explain it perfectly or defend it flawlessly, but you must believe it. You must believe this, even if it's confusing, even if it's hard to understand. Which leads me to my second question this morning. Why does it matter? Why does the doctrine of Trinity matter? Honestly, I I hesitate to even ask that question because it seems so trite. You know, we're talking about a topic so massive and so glorious to ask why does this matter seems so petty. But it's an important question that we should ask. Maybe it's a question that you're asking this morning. Maybe you're thinking right now, why can't we just talk about something more practical? Let, Let me give you two reasons why the Trinity matters. But first, let me just go back for just a second and, and, and ask you to contemplate something for a moment. If the elders announced at our members' meeting tonight that we had changed our understanding of the Trinity to something like one of those four errors I mentioned earlier, maybe, you know, we announced tonight, we said the elders have a new position on Trinity. We've decided that God really does appear in four di- or three different moods or modes. Or, or, you know, we really think there actually are three gods or, or one, something like that. If we came out and said something like that, would you keep your membership here? Would you say, you know, uh, man, I, I still like the music or the people or my Sunday school class. still like the fellowship. Preaching still good, so, you know, it's fine. Would you fight for a little bit, but then eventually just, you know what, it's not really that big of a deal. It's just the Trinity. Or would you say, though, this is worth leaving over? It should be worth leaving over. Because what we're talking about is, is not merely some peripheral doctrine over here. We're talking about the nature of God himself. So the Trinity matters because, number one, God matters. Because God matters. We're talking about who God is. Who is he? When we sing, sing we the song of Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Who do we mean when we sing to Emmanuel? When we sing holy, 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 who is the being that we are singing to? It matters because God matters. Fred Sanders, in his book, The Deep Things of God, says this, it makes no sense to ask what the point of the Trinity is or what purpose the Trinity serves. The Trinity isn't for anything beyond itself because the Trinity is God. God is God in this way. 
God's way of being God is to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously from all eternity, perfectly complete in a triune fellowship of love. If we don't take this as our starting point, everything we say about the practical relevance of the Trinity could lead to one colossal misunderstanding. Thinking of God the Trinity as a means to some other end, as if God were the Trinity in order to make himself useful, end quote. Listen, when we ask Let's make this relevant. Let's make this practical. We've got to be careful because sometimes there is a idolatry of self behind that desire. Because ultimately, the practical side of this is that we just believe that God is exactly who he says he is. And he exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you want to know God... You must know him as he is, not how you want him to be. He will not lower himself to meet your expectations. He will not shrink himself to your understanding. He is who he is, and he is Trinity. He is Trinity. I would, I would challenge you in this room, brothers and sisters, don't succumb to Trinitarian agnosticism either. Uh, we know what agnosticism is, right? It's, it's kind of like this laissez-faire attitude, like I don't know if God exists or not, so you know, I just, I'm just not worried about it. Some of you might be tempted to adopt that posture, not to the existence of God, but to the nature of God as Trinity. And you might say, well, this is too confusing, this is too hard to understand, so I'm not gonna try. God has given you his word. And told you who he is, would you discard that and say that you love him? Would you say it's not worth diving into the depths of this book to know this God as he has revealed himself to be? Don't adopt that posture, Christian. If anything, our hearts should long to know him better, to strive to know him more as he reveals himself to be. The Trinity matters because God matters. I want to just offer a practical challenge to you, brothers and sisters. Make it your goal. Make it your goal over the next year to understand this doctrine better. Not perfectly, you will not, but to understand it better, maybe uh, just may, you know, find a way to, to get in your Bible and study every reference to the Trinity that you can find. Keep a journal and write it all out and, and just dive deep into God's Word. Or, or maybe uh, find a book like Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves or The Forgotten Trinity by James White or The Deep Things of God by Fred Sanders. Find one of these books that, that try to explain this doctrine so that you can understand it better. Not to try to make it easy to understand. That will be impossible. But to get your mind a little bit better acclimated to who this God is. Or maybe take some time and, and work on memorizing something like the Athanasian Creed. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We're, we're, uh, we're given this really robust doctrine 
creedal statement about what Christians believe when we say God is Trinity. The Trinity matters because God matters. Number two, the Trinity matters because the gospel matters. What's the gospel? What's the good news, Christian? The good news, the gospel is that God is a holy, righteous creator, created this world and everything in it, yet we rebelled against him, and because of our sin, we are doomed to forever separation from him, but God, the Father, in his great love for us, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life, die a sinner's death, rise from the dead, and then ascend into heaven and send his spirit so that we might follow him faithfully. You cannot tell the gospel story without the Trinity. You can't. Uh, This doesn't mean, as one theologian said, that you should begin every witnessing encounter by saying, you know, know, God loves you and he has a, a wonderful Trinity for you to understand, right? It's probably not the best place to start when you're trying to share the gospel with people, but... You can't really understand the gospel if you deny the Trinity. You can't. It's hardwired in. Because the gospel matters, this message that, that ought to be at the very the, the warp and woof of who we are as a church, because the gospel matters, the Trinity matters. Just think about the, the, the most famous verse in the Bible. Joe and I were watching a football game the other day and someone was kicking a field goal and there, right in the middle of the field goal post was someone holding up a sign with what Bible verse on it? John 3.16, right? John 3.16, most famous verse in the Bible. Think about just this one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Think with me about how much you learn about the Trinity just from that one simple verse. You learn that the fact that God has a son means that he's a father. You you learn that the fact that the father gave his son means that he and the son are distinct persons. The father can't give the son if he is the son. You, You learn that giving the son is an expression of the father's love. And it tells us something about the relationships within the Trinity. The fact that Jesus is called God's only son suggests that Jesus is a son in a unique way. Our text in Galatians tells us that we are sons and daughters of God, but not in the same way that Jesus is the son of God. He didn't become the son. He was always the son. We we cannot receive eternal life except through the Father's sending of the Son. And a few verses earlier in John chapter 3, Jesus makes it clear that we are born again. We are able to believe this by whose power? The power of the Spirit. You can't tell the gospel without the Trinity. So in the midst of all the things that you need to remember to do this Christmas season, don't forget to celebrate the Trinity We're going to conclude our services this month, conclude the sermons this month, with a reading from the ancient church that upholds and affirms this doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Today we're going to read from the Athanasian Creed, uh, named after Athanasius, uh, who was a pastor in Alexandria in the third and fourth centuries. 
Uh, Athanasius was known as the chief defender of the doctrine of the Trinity against the heresies taught by Arius. So St. Nick, he's like the bodyguard, right? He's punching Arius, but, but Athanasius, he's the defender. He's the mouthpiece. He's the guy that's defending the Trinity. Uh, the, the creed that I'm about to read from was probably not written by Athanasius, uh, we, we think it's probably written in the 5th or 6th century, but it's a great representation of what he taught. For 1,500 years, Christians have found this creed to be a helpful tool in explaining what we do and don't believe about the Trinity. I'm going to read a portion of it to you. It's too long for us to uh, do it all together and still have communion and all of that like we want to do this morning. But uh, some of it will be on the screen. If you believe what's on the screen, I'm just going to encourage you to read along with me if you like. So uh, if we can get that up on the screen. Here we go. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit, still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Nothing in this trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. And their entirety, the three persons, are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their trinity and their unity and their unity and their trinity. That's what we're going to do right now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want to invite you to think with me about the, how the Lord's Supper is an invitation to worship the trinity. Of course, Jesus' place in this meal is obvious. In Matthew 26, Scripture says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But, but as we take the bread and the cup, we're reminded of our relationship with the Father, Matthew 26, verse 28, Jesus says, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' blood is poured out so that the Father can forgive our sins. When you take communion, the Father is reminding you that your sins are forgiven. Not because of your works, Christian, but because of the works of Jesus and the Spirit is also present with us as we take communion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Scripture says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The Spirit is with us to nourish our souls, to help us persevere, and to unite us together as brothers and sisters as we worship Jesus in this meal. So I would challenge you to worship the Father as you pray silently and prepare your heart for communion. If there's other unconfessed sins that you haven't already confessed, bring them to the Father in our moment of silence before you come to a table and praise Him for His grace. Worship the Son as you come to the table. One of our pastors prays over you and and you eat the bread in a small group of family and friends. If you're, by the way, if you're uncomfortable coming to one of the tables in just a moment uh, due to health concerns or COVID-19 or anything like that, you can remain in your seat and hold your hand up and one of our deacons will bring you the bread and the cup to you where you sit. But we invite you to come to the table if you'd like. And finally, we challenge you to worship the Spirit when we take the cup together as a church family, being reminded of how the Spirit makes us one. More important, though, than how we celebrate this meal is who. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we would plead with you, do not take the bread and cup. Take Christ. Do not take the bread and the cup unless you personally have turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you have done that, this meal was planned by the Father for your joy. So take it with joy. I'm going to invite you to prepare your heart, bow your heads, and when you're ready, come to any of the tables. Be near us, Holy Trinity, one light, one only deity. All things are thine on thee depend, who art beginning without end. Praise to the Father made of none. Praise to the sole begotten Son. Praise to the Holy Spirit be, mysterious Godhead, one in three. You come when you're able.